Hello, folks. Welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. As I get older, I become passionate about finding the best ways to refresh the mind, refuel the body, and rebuild strength so that I can keep doing what I love into my 60s and 70s. If you have similar goals to me, then I hope you'll join me each week as I bring you amazing guests from around the world, all with the goal of helping you to improve your sporting performance, regardless of whether you're a triathlete, ocean swimmer, ultra runner, or a gravel racer. This week, I'm joined by Joel Jamieson. Joel is a strength and conditioning specialist who has a real focus on athlete recovery. He first came to my attention when I read one of his articles about specific recovery style workouts called rebound training. He's been working with heart rate variability for the last 20 years, which probably puts him at the forefront of this particular subject. And so part of our conversation will also tie in very nicely with some of the other podcasts from recent months. So without further ado, let's crack on and hear what Joel's got to say. Welcome to the show, Joel Jameson. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. I think you're the first person I've spoken to who's actually been in Hawaii when I haven't been there. I've done a few podcasts <laughs> from the Big Island, but it's a, it's a complete contrast to be speaking to somebody on a different, completely opposite time zone because it's evening for you and early morning for me. Yeah, upside of the world, and uh, I, I can't complain. It's it's great here, so no no regrets being over here. Well, I'm I'm hoping, as I said in our pre-chat, that I'm hoping to be back in Kona this year for the Ironman. It's been interrupted by um, the COVID pandemic, but uh, Joel. Um, the first time I came across you, I think Brad Cairns had shared an article or a link to an article you wrote about recovery-driven conditioning, which was a, a new concept to me. Not, not um, the concept somebody actually speaking about specific recovery workouts. But I'm, I'm interested, before we get going, let's sh- um, share with the listeners a little bit about your background because it's been wide and varied um, across many different yes. sports. So I'll over to you. Yeah. I mean, so I, I got started in the field of strength conditioning. Like a lot of people, I was, I was the former athlete myself and really likes the the training side of things. Interned with a guy named Bill Gillespie, University of Washington, who I think he's 60 something years old now and benched, he might have benched 800 pounds. I know he's at least 700 pounds. I'm just an absolute monster in the gym. And I was really heavily focused on the strength side and working with football players, went to the Seahawks the NFL for a little bit with him. And then decided to open my own gym. And, and like most coaches, like I said, I was, I was very much focused on the strength side. I didn't know a whole lot about the conditioning side. And then it turned out my gym was next to an MMA facility. And very quickly in my career, I had top level, world champion level MMA athletes asking me to train them and, and help them improve their conditioning. So I, I kind of started out with a very strength-based approach. And then I started training the sport myself and realized all the strength in the world wouldn't do me any good after 10 seconds because I was gassed out and they were beating me up. So I had to, to really dig into the conditioning side and learn, learn that whole end of the game. And it's been a journey that's taken me from combat sports to tactical athletes, the military, to different team sports and kind of anything in between. Uh, and then the same point in time, I was introduced to heart rate variability and the fitness world, uh, fitness tech world early in my career as well. So that's also been a big piece of things. I've used HRV and different markets of data to train athletes and different people for you know 20 years now. So I've uh, created technology companies that have a certification to help other people learn how to improve their conditioning. And so it's really been um, just, a, like you said, a, a varied mix of, of different things. At the end of the day, I try to help people improve their conditioning because I think it's so crucial to almost every area of fitness. And a lot of times technology is a really effective way to do that. So I help develop the technology and the educational pieces that go along with that to, to help people reach their goals and 
Um, like I said, I focus on the conditioning side, but I've definitely played the whole game of, of strength conditioning at one point or another. Most of the athletes that I'm involved with are endurance sports. So the conditioning required for events that take place over one, right up to 16 or 17 hours, if you're doing an Ironman at the back end of the field, uh, mm-hmm. it's probably quite different to that required for the explosive activities that you've just described there. So uh, can you can you give me and the listeners a general um, terminology description your description for conditioning sure. and then and then also talk about how that might differ for endurance athletes versus team and uh, explosive athletes yeah i mean i think it's a it's a good place to start because there's, there's there's a very universal understanding of what strength is but when you say conditioning different people think of slightly different things and when you talk about fitness you know that's also another thing that not everyone defines the same way so i i look at fitness and conditioning as a very clear thing so to me Fitness are things that we can measure and they're usually you know, physiological markers. So we can measure your VO2 max, for example. We can measure your lactic threshold. We can measure um, your body fat. We can measure mobility. We can measure all these physical qualities that I would say are all fitness qualities. And to me, conditioning is the application of those qualities toward, of your fitness towards a particular goal. So obviously in the case of an endurance athlete, conditioning is how well they can use their fitness to perform well in a race or whatever the event may be. So I, I look at, again, we, we can look at these markers of fitness because we can, we can measure all these things, but those don't directly perform. Those don't directly always correlate performance. I can't just rank everybody by VO2 max and expect that to be the finishing order of the race. Right. So to me, we have to develop both the fitness qualities that are necessary for a sport. And then we have to develop the ability to use those qualities. It's like, I, I like to use the analogy of building a house. So you can, you can have, uh, the nails and you can have the wood and the drywall, you have all the components, but if you don't know how to build a house, then you're not going to have a house. And so to me, conditioning is the ability to utilize your fitness. And I have a model I call the M3 model. It's it's movement, metabolic systems, and mental performance, because really it's those three areas that are what take the fitness qualities you've developed and turn them into the ability to perform at the end of the day, whatever it is you're trying to perform in. So, you know, in the big picture, that's, that's essentially how I look at it. Um, I think each sport has a model of performance. Every sport's got a model of what aerobic and anaerobic markers and different physiological qualities are important and which ones aren't important. Mm. And then every sport has a way to put those together from a movement, metabolic and mental standpoint, that's going to lead to, uh, the best performance. So ultimately that's how I approach things. I think I was reading one of the articles on, on your, um, site that, that referenced conditioning and talking about having the, having the fitness to be able to complete the work that you require to do in your game, um, mm-hmm. whatever that whatever that sport is, and I guess in in endurance sports, um, we sometimes hear athletes say, "Well, I'm not fit enough to do that. I need to get fitter." Um, of course, there's lots of constraints for most people. They're weekend warriors, so there's a limit to how much training they can do and how fit they can get, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But also, I think sometimes the goals of people are unrealistic, so they're aiming for something that's beyond them, and then they blame their fitness on the fact that they couldn't get there, rather than the fact that it was their ambitions that were unrealistic. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that unfortunately, in today's world of internet headlines and clickbait and social media, it's really easy to be um, unsure of what's possible and to shoot for the moon, and which is Great, but if you start out with really unrealistic expectations, and especially the time frame it takes to get from point A to point B, yeah, you know, it's easy to it's easy to either a set yourself up for disappointment or failure, or b you know just overwork your capacity and end up in a worse spot than where you started. And that's something I see you know frequently in, in any sport that's got a high volume of training. You know, you're always at a higher risk of of 
uh, you know, overuse injuries and everything else. And I would say particularly the endurance sports, you know, those are, they're high volume sports. And anytime you're talking about high level aerobic fitness, you got to train a lot. And, and that really means you're, you're opening yourself up to overuse injuries and overtraining and everything else. And performance becomes this, this balancing act between how much volume intensity can I train with? And then how much can I recover from? Because ultimately, you know, if, if you're not able to effectively recover, then the training's not benefiting you and it could potentially cause in, uh, more harm than good. Mm, something that was on the tip of my mind there, endurance sports. You see, that, that's the thing I always think is you can't mess with biology. The body will develop at a certain speed, won't it? Endurance sports are long lasting. They take a long time to complete. And they take a long time to train for. That's like, that's endurance. Um, it is. But again, in this, in this sort of social media driven world, it seems like everyone's in a hurry to get there and posts that you see giving hacks about how to short circuit your recovery and how to <laughs> speed up your, um, speed up your development are just, you know, the red herrings really, aren't they? And, and missed, um, must be incredibly frustrating for somebody like you to see people who think that they can get ready for a, you know, a three hour marathon in three months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I said, it's, it's, it's kind of human nature. We're very short sighted. Uh, we tend to look at right in front of us and a lot of people have trouble looking at planning, not three weeks, but three months, you know, six months, a year. Um, so what I really like to do is break stuff up into shorter term goals for people and make it very clear what we're trying to achieve and when we're trying to achieve it so that those expectations can be met. Um, and it's really important from multiple reasons or from multiple reasons, but one of them is, is your body's motivation is kind of based on what you expect to happen versus what does happen. That's, that's how a lot of the dopamine system drives our behavior. So if I take somebody and I, and I set some really high expectation, they fail, it's demotivating. They're not likely to continue working because they're, they perceived the benefits to be less than what they uh, were expecting. So it's really important to, to break, you know, milestones down into shorter chunks and to give people very realistic expectations of, of what's going to happen and then to measure and track along the way. Because the contrary to that is when people see progress and they see themselves hitting these different milestones, then they're highly motivated. They'll keep going. So if you're a coach, you work with somebody or you're, or you're just training yourself, you know, setting those realistic, realistic expectations and then breaking things up into shorter milestones that are achievable is, is a really big piece of, of keeping the, again, keeping the motivation high and keeping your, your overall training on track. Mm. You talked about HRV. I mean, that's grown in popularity. I, you mentioned the Amiga wave earlier on in our conversation. I mm. think that was my first exposure to HRV years ago. There was a, a Dutch, a Dutch coach was using one with me. Oh, Hank Kreinhoff, maybe. Yes, um, he was coaching Merlin Otty at the time, and I remember him yeah. talking about how they'd been using this with the England Rugby Union team um, prior to the World yeah, Cup. He, he was one of the very early, yeah, he was, he was one of the earliest coaches to use it. There was myself and Hank and and uh, a few Randy Huntington and a few other kind of under the radar coaches that were using this thing back in. Uh, I think I was exposed to it in maybe two thousand two, somewhere yeah. around two thousand yeah. two thousand one. Even I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's been twenty years at this point. So, um, yeah, I mean, back, back in those days, there really was, there weren't mobile apps, there weren't trackers, you know, HRV was a very foreign concept and, and I had, I had trouble explaining it to people. And at that point you had to, you had to connect six different electrodes to people mm -hmm. and had to sit there for two and a half minutes being smacked or connecting to this computer. It was a very, uh, cumbersome process. And like, so I, I had a hard time even telling people what I was doing. I would, I would tell them it's like taking your car in the shop and plugging the computer, see how things are working mm -hmm. under the hood. And that was about the best analogy I could come up with. They they let me stick electrodes on them every day before before workout. Um, but things have definitely come a long way, and it's it's been really cool to see the 
the uh, increased popularity and the just notoriety and awareness that's that's happened around HRV because it's a hugely valuable tool if it's used effectively. Well, what fascinated me about Hank's presentation was that he he talked about alcohol specifically and he said, you know, when you think you've had a couple of drinks in an evening and then you fall asleep straight away and so, you know, recover, uh, alcohol helps you get to sleep. He said, I can tell you that's not true. And in fact, we mm-hmm. can measure your ability to get into dreamy sleep and deep sleep and what happens is whilst you're asleep, it's just like a, it's almost like an anesthetic. You're just unconscious, but you're not really getting into any meaningful state of recovery sleep. And it just, it's just delayed and um, you're probably dehydrated. And he said, and it really plays havoc with your HRV. And I thought, oh, that's fascinating. I wonder if there's a way in which you can measure this regularly on, um, on the people I'm working with. But of course that didn't happen until we got well, some of the polar applications and aura and um, whoop now. Yeah, well, I mean, I, so I, I, I launched one called Bioforce HRV in 2011. So right. one of the, the early ones, another one called iThlete that were uh, as a partner company. And, and, you know, we were kind of the early ones to get HRV into the market and make it, you know, and the product was accessible back then it was a couple hundred dollars, which is, you know, a far cry from what the Omega Wave was. Um, but again, I think it's taken a while for the mainstream to catch up with it. I mean, the funny thing is I talked to Polar before I launched Biofor, so I talked to Polar, I don't know, 2009 or 10, and I was saying, hey, why don't you guys make HRV more accessible? Because you have the ability to measure it. They had the algorithm. I mean, they, they'd studied it for decades, but they never really had built it into their consumer mm. devices. And wow. it was kind of an underground thing you could get to through the research tools, but it was not made publicly available. And they sent, they basically said, we don't think consumers will understand it, and, and we don't want to add more confusion, so we're just not going to incorporate it. And on the one hand, I can kind of get their point. Um, but I think they could have helped build the awareness and education because they had the influence across the industry. Um, they just didn't. So, but you know, it's, it's definitely grown in leaps and bounds over the last few years and more and more people are aware of it and, and more and more people are, are using it. Mm. I've been wearing a whoop now for five years. So I was quite early into that one. Um, gotcha. uh, uh, what, what do you think about the current um, innovations from the sleep trackers and, and their, 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 what, what do you think about the accuracy and data and the way they present the, the information? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, to me, that's the problem. Um, unfortunately, with 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 I think most of the sleep trackers are are reasonably accurate. I think getting this into the most of the research shows getting into like the actual sleep stages is you know a, a best guesstimate, not super accurate, but at least point in the right direction. I think the challenge I have with the HRV tools out there now is is there's a big difference between passively measuring HRV in the background and actively measuring HRV to consistent time and context, because the best analogy I like to look at it as, or explain it is, if I was going to track my body weight and my goal was to lose or weight or gain weight or whatever, you know, I have two strategies. I could either A, measure myself every time, the same time every morning and consistently measure my body weight before I'd eaten and drink and done a bunch of stuff, or I could just kind of randomly go about it throughout the day whenever I felt like it. Now, most people for trying to lose weight or gain weight, the first strategy makes the most sense because you're measuring it in consistent time and you're going to see more consistent measurements because the context is the same when you're measuring it. The problem is the way the HRV devices these days are designed, most of them at least, is they're just measuring HRV in the background at random periods. And it's not nearly, nearly as consistent because you don't get the same context. And then you look at, okay, well, we'll just measure during sleep. Well, the problem with that is that the devices, Whoop or all these devices, they don't have the capacity to measure HRV all night uh, because you would absolutely destroy the battery at the, the resolutions that are necessary to get HRV data accurately. So they're just taking little snippets and mm-hmm. you don't really know when they're measuring it. You don't know how long they're measuring it for. You don't know what body position you're in. There's there's a lot of variables that are going into driving the HRV number. So 
I, I think the unfortunate thing is, is, you know, they've traded convenience, uh, made it more convenient, but less accurate. Uh, and most of the research supports that. I mean, HRV has been around for 70 years and the amount of pep- amount of published papers on overnight HRV wearables, I can count one hand. It just isn't really exists. It hasn't been validated because it's just not how HRV is typically measured in a clinical setting. And it's not how uh, most of the, the actual peer-reviewed public papers were built because it's very mm. difficult to measure when you don't have that context of a daily um, you know, snapshot. You're just kind of measuring it ad hoc throughout the night and they're using some algorithm to figure out what they can figure out. But uh, my, my general opinion is that they're, they're not particularly accurate for the most part. I think URA is probably the best. I've seen some of their data and I think they probably do the best job. I think they measure it the most frequently, um, but I've never seen a, a validation paper from Whoop that I was impressed by. They've got a little bit of stuff here and there, but the core paper they're referencing was, was done by uh, a company they paid to basically do the research. So I don't put a whole lot of stock in that, but uh, look, I, I think at the end of the day, if you're paying attention to the data, you know, it's probably a lot better than doing nothing. And it's going to give you some awareness about your sleep. It's going to give you awareness about the impact of alcohol. It's going to give you awareness about a lot of things. Mm. So I think at the end of the day, that's, that's the most important thing is if you're, you're being more aware and you're taking actions, that's really what matters. I did a podcast with three of the people I work with who've all been using the whoop for the last between a year and two years. And the biggest thing for me as a coach is the um, positive behavior changes that come about mm-hmm. that awareness of the data, you know, certainly timing, if you're going to have, if you're going to have any alcohol, the timing of that in the evening and how that can alter your HRV, depending on whether it's early in the evening or, or later. Um, and, and just behaviors that, that change around going to sleep, you know, so like a pre-sleep ritual and a post-sleep ritual that sort of seem to lead to better figures. And, and yep, exactly. in, in, in the long run, I, I, as a coach, I feel that that, that those positive lifestyle changes are, are way more valuable yeah, I mean, than whether the data is accurate or not. Um, yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, that's for 99% of the population, the most important thing is, you know, are you more aware of things that you can improve? And then are you taking actions to improve mm-hmm. them? If the answer is yes, uh, then those are good things and you'll definitely end up in the right direction for people whose, you know, performance is on the line and you're talking about a career, you know, accuracy matters. And you're talking about people are trying to shave tenths off of a second and they're yeah. training for six months for one competition, you know, accuracy matters. So um, mm-hmm. I think it really depends on the, the the population we're talking about. And, you know, I think the, the athletes whose lives are on the line, careers are on the line, millions of dollars are on the line, or, or just people that are training for something really serious and putting their, their time in. And, you know, I think mm. at that point accuracy can become a really uh, important variable for the person who just needs to stay motivated and get in the gym and train. Uh, then, then the most important thing is just as long as it motivates you to do that. Well, that's a good opportunity then for us to move on to uh, specifically talk about recovery in the triathlon world, in the endurance sports world, there is a, a common reference to my legs feel good today. You know, they're not sore anymore. I did sure. that ride or run at the weekend and my legs were sore yesterday. So I didn't train as much. So I didn't train at all, um, but they feel better today. So ergo, I am recovered. But of course, that's just one of 11 systems in the body, the muscular system and the central nervous system and the hormonal system recovering, you know, get stressed and recover in different ways. So I'm really interested to, to talk about how you, when you were working with elite athletes and those people for whom recovery and performance is critical, how, how do you, accurately measure recovery or so, is it a way <laughs> yeah i mean look the, the biggest thing i use is i have my own hrv recovery platform called morpheus and so we pull in sleep data we pull activity we pull in train heart rates we pull in hrv we pull in a lot of data from a lot of different sources um, and then i developed an algorithm basically over the years it gives people back a recovery score 
based on that. So it's a, it's a combination of objective data and, and subjective about how they feel. So we do ask them how sore they are, or how tired they are, those sorts of things. It's a, it's a mix of that that we then, or I use, and, and other coaches I train to use it, uh, put together and, and make, assist, you know, make decisions. And it really, I think we have to be aware of what recovery, what, when we're talking about measuring recovery, what are we really mm-hmm. measuring? Because I think people have a lot of misconception about that. They, they tend to think of, okay, my recovery is high. Uh, you know, therefore I can go train hundred percent. I'm going to perform my highest. My recovery is low. Therefore I'm not gonna be able to train very well. I'm not perform whatever. We, we don't really have that capacity in our measurements uh, at this point. I don't think, I think what we're actually measuring is just kind of where you are in this process of, of stress and recovery. We're not really measuring readiness for performance, which is what a lot of people think that they're actually getting. They think again, that if their recovery is low, they're not gonna be able to perform well. Not really. Right. Or if their recovery is low, they're getting injured. We don't have that granularity right now at this point in time with, with any of the data we have. So I think what we're really measuring, like I said, is, is where you are in this process of putting your body under stress, both mental and physical, and then dealing with that stress and recovering from it. It's, it's just a process. So it's where are you on that stress recovery curve? And that doesn't necessarily predict performance or injury, but that predicts the cost of adding more stress to your body. And that's where I like to position it. Let's say I go into a workout and I have a heavy workout plan. If my recovery is low, it's going to take me longer to recover and get back to a normal state than if my recovery was high to start with. So it's given us this idea of what I would call the, you know, the, the balance essentially between that process of putting our body under load and stress and the following process of recovering and restoring everything back to where it was and hopefully better than it was with a super compensation. Um, because at the end of the day, one of the most important things to understand is, is your body's energy resources are, are limited. Your body can't produce this unending amount of energy and it compensates by redirecting energy into different areas, depending on what you're doing. So, uh, the point being, if I'm putting my body under so much load and I'm, ex- I'm ex- you know, extending so much energy towards dealing with physical and mental stress, and there's not enough left to recover, then the gains are, aren't going to be there. The improvements aren't going to be there. And, and ultimately Recovery is just kind of showing us in that process what is happening and helping us make smart decisions about is it a good idea to load myself further now, or is it a good idea to give my chance myself a little bit more time for those processes to take place before I repeat that over and over again? Because ultimately it's it's this process, right? Train, recover, train, recover, train, recover over and over again that leads to better results. And if the balance is right, I get better. If the balance is wrong, I don't. It, it really is kind of that simple. So that's that's where having some insight into what recovery is doing and where we are in that process uh, can be hugely valuable. How important, you know, in, in terms of a, a ratio between the data, so the objective stuff and the subjective, like how I feel, how motivated I feel to train, because I've seen some of the AIS stuff and they used to have a little ranking score that they gave their athletes, didn't they, about how motivated are you, how sore are you, how well yep. do you sleep, um, you know, do you, uh, how fatigued do you feel and just get people to rank one and five and motivation to train is always given as a really good um, uh, way of, of monitoring that for people who don't have the data. So if you were giving a ratio of scores between the objective and the subjective information, um, can you assign more information uh, importance to one or other of those or the equally I mean, distributed? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I can give you exact weight percentage. I also think it depends on the person. Honestly, there, there's definitely different abilities to be subjective and know your body and know what feels uh, like it should or what doesn't. And, and athletes that train all the time are much more in tune with how they feel, what's tired, what's sore, where the motivation is than people who are, you know, very casual about it. 
Um, but if you look at most of the data out there, I mean, there's there are some good subjective markers. I mean, your motivation definitely does correlate to HRV and correlate to other indicators of performance. Uh, how you your sleep quality, so how you rate your sleep quality in some research correlates very well to HRV. So there's there are some good studies that show you that I mean they should align because they should be telling you the same story mm. um, for the most part. And I would say if if they tell you something completely different then either you're not very in tune with your body or the data you're looking at might not be correct. It might not be particularly valid. So I would say, you know, in general, they should basically align. I would say that the data tends to be more of a leading indicator uh, and the subjective tends to be more of a lagging indicator. You know, usually by the time you're really suffering lack of motivation, you're really fatigued and run down, uh, you're really sore and tired, like you've probably further down that path than the data uh, could have caught you earlier, basically. I, I tend to see... The data show us what's going to happen. And then if you keep going, you'll feel the results of it is, is kind of the best way to look at it. Are there any training uh, methods that you use that help people to understand um, that they're recovered? You know, I've heard people saying that the vertical jump, if you have a baseline, is, it, is a good way of measuring that because that sort of that's your explosivity and power. Yeah, and yeah, that. yeah. I mean, uh, kind of movement jump, if you can kind of depend on what you have available, but Time on the ground, if you have a way to measure ground contact time correlates really well. If you don't have anything at all to measure, just broad jump. You know, how far you can jump if, if you're all of a sudden off two or three inches, uh, that's a pretty significant number in depending on how far you're going, I guess. Um, but you, you'll see differences in explosive power pretty, pretty quickly uh, because the CNS is subject to a lot of different um fatigue, depending on how you're training. And you'll see those markers often decrease. I know there's the old like research that shows you the grip test, and I, I've just never seen that work in practical reality of getting people to grip something and see how much force they're generating and using that. I mean, there's research that supports it, but it just doesn't seem very practical. I don't know if it's ever done it particularly successfully. Um, but yeah, I would say absence of any training tools, measurement techniques, anything just to, or just a broad jump is, is probably the one I've seen correlate fairly well. And, you know, at least give you some indication of it because it is a total body explosive exercise. And if you're uh, CNS or your autonomic nervous system are fatigued, that's going to suffer. I've I've seen those little tap tests you can get. I think there's a little app you can get for your phone now that you just you just tap as fast as you can with you with um, your index finger from both hands. And um, do, do you put any store in those? I I, I mean I don't know honestly. I've, I've I've definitely seen them. I haven't dug into to how accurate they are. Um, probably you know depend. I mean the biggest thing I would say is a lot of these tests also vary from person to person. Yeah. Uh, some are more accurate than than others in, in different scenarios. So again, I kind of think if you if you just pay attention to the overall state, you know, whether it's yourself or people you're coaching, you can, you can pretty much get a clear picture by watching the move, by seeing how they talk, interact with you, mm. you know, aside from actual physical measures, like the best coaches that I know are, are really good at, at understanding what the athletes need um, because they just intuitively train so many people and they get a feel for what somebody looks like when they're fatigued and maybe need less work and what someone looks like when they're ready to go. So that's some that's just the, the skill of coaching. I'm I'm just thinking there. Broad jump is not something that would generally be in the training regime of a triathlete. So getting somebody to try and do that if they're not used to it might not be a good measure. Is would, would you have any any different measures for um, for endurance athletes other than just do your normal warm up and see how sprightly and uh, and and sharp you feel? And if you know maybe yeah, do I mean, some, maybe do some strides. And if you don't feel like you're picking up quickly enough, then maybe just have an easier session. Yeah, I mean, you can you can look at heart rate. I mean, that's it's going to be a rough. The, the research says you know it's not hugely um, important if heart rate's a little bit higher than normal. But if you start seeing heart rate during warm up being you know significantly higher than you would normally see it, or 
Um, you know, you just feel more sluggish. Like with, with endurance sports, you know, it's hard to do an endurance test without, uh, you know, paying the price of doing that test. So there's not necessarily a, a great way to do it, but you can, you can use, uh, you know, that, that's, that is why HRV and those sorts of thing tools are valuable because they're non-invasive and they, they, they take a small amount of time and they give you a lot of uh, value. But like I said, the, the biggest thing I would say is endurance athletes, to me, they tend to be really good at knowing what their body uh, is telling them and really bad at actually listening to it. A lot of them. So a lot of times they, they know they're tired and they're fatigued and they don't feel great, but they feel like they have to do more anyway. So a lot of times I don't know if it's knowing what their readiness is or what the recovery is as so as much as it is listening to that and making strategic decisions, uh, you know, accordingly that to me, that's the, the bigger challenge I've seen than, than people knowing kind of what their body's doing. It's, it's then doing something about it. Two of the best coaches that I've worked with in, in the UK, one was a swim coach, one was a, um, uh, run coach, triathlon coach, both with Olympic medal, gold medal winning athletes under their, you know, to their, um, care but could watch somebody the running coach particularly could watch somebody walk across the athletic track to the pavilion and, and ask them if they're okay before they'd even said anything and then even despite yep. saying yeah yeah i'm fine thank you um knowing that within a couple of laps they'd be asking if they could have an easier session or breaking down in tears because something was going wrong emotionally so yeah, i think exactly. that's that's the skill of good coaching isn't it it is yeah i mean i, I went out to uh, altus in, in arizona and watched damp half uh, fantastic track coach and his staff yes. are all, you know, Stu McGill, all, all those guys are, Arthur McMillan. Those guys are all uh, amazing coaches. And that's the biggest thing you'll see is they can just watch the mechanics of their athletes mm -hmm. and know what's going on and, and get a very, very fine tune of what the athlete needs on that day uh, based on what they're doing. I think that's one of the best team coaches to the team, the team coaches that are really successful. Uh, you know, they can read the mood of the team. They can read the feeling of the team itself and understand what that team needs. And, and that's really this, you know, that's years of coaching and being uh, very astute and aware and paying attention and, and wanting to be a good coach. You know, I can, I can, you can oftentimes tell how good a coach is by seeing how much tension they pay during the warm up and cool down with their athletes. If they're just kind of off in the office doing nothing and letting the other coaches do that, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're probably not as aware as that as, as someone who's out there being a part of the, the practice of the session from start to finish, because there's a lot you can, game when you're reading between the lines of of those sorts of environments yeah i i fully concur that just watching people walk onto poolside where their heads up and they're walking sprightly or their heads down and they're dragging their feet it's, it's yep. just good an indicator as anything isn't it about how they've woken up it so let, let, let's get into um specific workouts because i said at the beginning uh, my first introduction to you was uh, an article about um recovery driven conditioning and very specific workouts intended to help people recover. So, um, can you just enlarge on that concept a little bit? Yeah, look, I mean, a lot of it came from, you know, when I work with combat athletes, so more often than not, they would come into my gym. I trained them in the mornings and then they'd have to go into the, you know, the MMA gym in the evenings and they'd have to train in high level. They'd have to spar, they'd have to drill, improve their technique. And, and so, you know, I was very aware of the importance of their quality of training in the, in the evening sessions. If their sparring wasn't very good because they were tired from my morning sessions, um, you know, they'd suffer. At the end of the day, we have to understand technique and skill are, are what pays the bills and the physiology has to be there to help them support that. But I couldn't let my training take away from that. So, you know, when I when I'd measure their, their HRV and we'd, we'd use different tech to look at their you know, the recovery and kind of what they needed a lot of times they'd come in the morning, particularly later in the weeks. And I'd be like, you know, this guy's fatigued. Like if I do a whole lot of work with him, I know that there's, there's probably not going to be a good session later tonight. And so I started experimenting with different ways 
to see if, okay, what can we do during this time with me to help them improve and look better in the evening and, and recover faster? And that's where this concept of you know, rebound training or recovery training came from. And, and really it's, it's, it's about just understanding that part of what drives recovery is blood flow, uh, a big part of it at least, part of what drives it is hormonal production, uh, and part of what drives it is just getting, you know, and, and moving in different directions and being uh, aware of how to improve it. So it's just, uh, you know, a series of trial and error and experimentation. And I came up with essentially kind of a template of how I do it, you know, breathing and going through dynamic warmups, uh, getting your heart rates up into the, the zone one, zone two, uh, a little bit of eccentric or sorry, a little bit of concentric strength work, um, and just kind of a series of, of movements and exercises that I put together and developed and refined over the years to help improve recovery. And then we would just look at their HRV later in the day and we'd look at HRV the following day and, and, and see, you know, how well it worked, you know? And so generally speaking, you know, going through this kind of 20 to 35 minute range of, of activity and workout, um, for most people is going to provide a benefit in terms of just increasing the recovery and helping them get back to normal faster versus sitting around and doing nothing. Um, and again, a lot of it's, it's, you know, it's the simplest core, but it's blood flow, right? Your, your tissues need blood flow, need oxygen to recover. And a lot of times they're not getting that if you're, you're kind of inactive or you're not moving around beyond uh, just your daily life. So going through, you know, active recovery type movements, going through the breathing drills and doing those sorts of things can be really, really beneficial. Would, would you have anything different for endurance athletes? No, not really. I mean, like I said, it's, it's recovery is driven by the same processes, you know, internally, whether you're a strength athlete or endurance athlete, the, the, really the difference is kind of volume. You can do a little bit more work used with endurance athlete just because their overall work capacity is, is higher to begin with, um, mm -hmm. versus a strength athlete whose cardiovascular system is not very good, uh, for the most part, uh, at least relative to endurance athletes. So I'll tend to use a little bit lower volumes with them. Um, but in general, like it, it comes down to just you, it's, it's hermetic, right? It's, it's the right amount is a lot of benefit and too much is not very good. So it's, it's keeping the whole thing, you know, no more than about 35 minutes, you know, from top to bottom and incorporating functional work. that's going to incorporate, uh, it's going to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. That's where a lot of the breathing exercises come in. That's where the mobility and movement exercises come in. Um, and then just getting kind of working through that process. And over time you can play around with different strategies, but the goal really is pretty simple. You should, you should feel better uh, in terms of less sore. You should feel more energized, uh, more mobile, that kind of stuff at the end of it than you did at the beginning of it. And you really should keep your overall calories low, like usually 300, 200 calories for the workout. You don't want to buy weight dependent, obviously, but you don't want to burn a ton of calories because you're, you're using more energy than you need to. Um, so, you know, in, in my experience, you, you kind of follow those general guidelines and you feel better afterwards. You're probably important. You're probably doing yourself a favor and improving your recovery. And as long as you um, do it consistently, you'll kind of get better at, at feeling the right amount for you, your own body to, to get that benefit. Doing what your body needs rather than what you think it needs, right? Because like you said earlier, endurance athletes have always got this capacity that they think they need more and more all the time. And, uh, yep. you know, you can push too far. Um, yeah, it's easy. I mean, I, I think the I call it effective, you know, you're, you're, you have an effective training limit and that, that effective training limit is set by your limits of your recovery, because ultimately we put our body under stress and then our body has to repair itself and get better from that, or it doesn't improve. And if we're spending so much energy and time on the, the stress side and the recovery is not uh, able to happen, then you don't get better from training. You get better from the time in between training. Um, so there's a limit, right? There's an upper limit of how much everyone can train effectively and, and benefit from it. And if you go over the limit, 
Uh, it just means you're not trained effectively. You're, you're ultimately, you know, A, you're doing more work than necessary and B, you're probably going to slow down your improvements more than anything else. Mm, now, stress is uh, an important thing because uh, I, I talked about Mike Stone earlier. I remember a comment he made in a presentation that stuck with me to this day that he kept repeating it. All stresses are cumulative. Yeah, there are, there are either two types of stresses out there. There's distress and you stress. And there's, you know, you're either resting and digesting or you're, you know, you're fighting and flighting and uh, yep. causing cortisol and adrenaline production. And, and all stresses do that. Um, and for recreational endurance athletes, part of the problem is that they have the stress from training, but they also have stress from other areas of their life, which they often don't think of. Absolutely. Um, whereas the a lot of the athletes you're talking about, that's their sole purpose is to train and perform. So perhaps they. But, I mean, I would say, I would say, even then, I mean, I don't, I don't care who you you can talk about the recreational person who got a forty hour work or the professional athlete who just trains. They both have stress outside yeah, of training. Yeah, sure. and, and usually the pressure of the competition, the travel, and all the things that go along with, you know, professionally performing as an athlete also add a huge amount of stress. And then, like you mentioned, sleep and nutrition and all these things play a big role as well. So. Um, yeah, I can, I can tell you what, kind of one of the biggest things you see with HRV is you do recognize and realize pretty quickly all the things outside the gym matter a whole lot because that's 23 or 22 or 21 hours, you know, depending on what you're training relative to the one, two or three hours a day that you're training and those hours add up and, and they make a really big difference. So like I said, I, I look at it as the, the time outside the gym sets the limit on what you should be doing inside the gym. Mm. Uh, because if you're getting enough sleep, you're eating well. You, you don't have to the mental stress, then you can afford to do more in the gym because you'll be able to recover from that. If those things aren't happening, then you need to think about dialing things back because you're just going to, uh, you know, put your body in a more load that's necessarily going to benefit from. So what can we do? Let's say that there are certain things that are fixed in our lives. You know, if we're working in the health service and we're putting on the front line, you know, um, we're dealing with stress there. Um, if you're bringing up young children, if there's a lot of travel that's, uh, you know, sitting in the car and getting frustrated with all of that, there are certain dealing with elderly parents. There are certain things that you, you can't really sort of um, contract out to somebody else or just ignore so you can get on with your training. Um, so given all of the um, outside stresses that we have that influence how much training we do, what, what, what positive uh, proactive steps can we take in order to help with our recovery on you mentioned some of those things there sleep recovery meditation that sort of stuff breathing yeah i mean sleep is sleep is definitely the biggest one right i mean that's that's where your body is most parasympathetic that's where you're spending most energy recovering because you're not moving around that's what your body's designed to do so you know if you do nothing else but focus on getting a good night of sleep every night that can make a massive difference you know when you go when you look kind of down the ladder then you next you go to nutrition nutrition is obviously a huge role because how much food and, and the quality of your food drives a lot of things about where our body uses that and, and how effectively it uses that to recover. Um, and then you look down again to mental stress. So again, I tend to not say, Hey, go do everything. I say, figure out what is the limiting factor, you know, in your lifestyle and, and things that you can make a difference and start there. So, you know, look at one thing you maybe not be doing a very good job. Let's say, let's say I'm just not getting enough sleep consistently. Well, I'm going to evaluate you know, what can I do to improve that? Maybe um, my, my room is really noisy and it wakes me up in the middle of the night and maybe getting a white noise machine for 20 bucks helps me sleep better. Um, or maybe my room is too bright and I can go get some blackout blinds and make my room darker and I can get better sleep. So I, I tend to just say, let, let's look at where your, your recovery might be sabotaging or sabotaged or what areas of your lifestyle might be the biggest challenges 
and then just chip away at it and, and look at things you can do to improve it. You know, a lot of times a really easy one is, is people have caffeine too late at night and that impacts their sleep without them realizing it. So cut out the caffeine late at night and all of a sudden you sleep better and now you recover faster. There's, there's lots of kind of little things like that that you can uh, find and you start looking, uh, but you got to just can be aware of how important those lifestyle factors are um, or you're not likely to make those changes. If you don't recognize how much sleep impacts your recovery, you don't recognize how much caffeine and alcohol and those things are impacting your recovery, you're probably not likely to make a change. So it's, it's building awareness first and then recognizing what you can improve and then, you know, working on develop those better, developing those better habits. Mm. Uh, back to my point earlier about using things like the aura and the whoop and, and some of the other, uh, I think you mentioned athlete and HRV for training, just, just to get some awareness and change habits and maybe experiment, you know, let's see what happens with my sleep when I have caffeine earlier on that. Let's see where, what happens when I drink a glass of wine or have dinner earlier rather than later. What, let's see what happens if I drink white wine versus red wine. Um, all of those things have different impacts on different people, don't they? And it's finding out what your training and recovery sweet spot is the secret, I think. It is actually exactly. And so like I said, my, my own system, Morpheus, we, we measure all that data, uh, including the HRV, and then we give it to the coaches and trainer. So we have a, we have a coaching platform that allows coaches to see all this data. So the biggest thing we've, we've seen, you know, is, is having that accountability where, you know, somebody's looking at how much you're sleeping or not sleeping. And, you know, they can see whether or not you did the workouts you're supposed to, or they can see, you know, what your HRV is doing. A lot of times that influences behavior. So it's not just knowing that you're aware of it. It's knowing that other people are going to be aware of it that can drive positive behaviors and changes. So that's something we've, uh, you know, I've really been focused on because I think that's a big missing piece of coaching is, you know, you, you can wear all the devices in the world, but if your coach can't see the data, they, they can't help guide your programming because of it. And they're just going to make the assumption you're good to go. They don't know any better. They can't see the data. So that's where I think we can take all the data that's coming in from wearables. Like I said, with, with Morpheus, we pull in Fitbit, we pull in Aura, uh, we pull in Garmin, we pull in Polar, pull in Apple Watch, and we pull in all that data, and then we share it with the coaches so they can make sense of it and they can help guide the train more effectively. Hmm. Let's. I'd like to come back to that before we finish, if you don't mind, and, and just talk sure. about uh, that in a bit more detail. Um, I'm getting on a bit now. I'm 58, um, and I've noticed that recovery takes longer. Um, I lose my fitness quicker, so I have different goals for training now. Number one is to avoid getting ill or injured, so I don't have large periods off. What what sort of things have you noticed professionally about um, recovery um, with age and some of the things that we need to be more mindful of as we get into our, well, I guess once... The, the 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 tipping point seems to be for most from you know for most literature is uh, you know the the age decline starts from the mid to late thirties depending on the individual so but then it yep. speeds up in the fifties so what what things have you noticed and what are the what are the highlights out of that yeah I mean the the biggest thing is that as our hormonal system starts declining our testosterone decreases and all these things we recover slower we're just we we take longer to regenerate like you mentioned and that's largely because uh, again, a lot of it's just the hormonal aspect isn't there to drive it. So our growth hormone goes down, our testosterone goes down, our, our anabolic hormones, which are, you know, anabolic is building up, right? Those are the things that drive recovery in a lot of ways. Uh, those numbers are lower. And so everything takes longer to get back to normal. So, you know, first and foremost, you just have to be aware of that and, and make your decisions accordingly and not try to train like you're 20 when you're 50. Um, and then secondly, the, the thing is, as you age, even beyond that, you're sleep tends to get worse and you tend to have a harder time sleeping. And there's this kind of mistaken idea that older people need a lot less sleep. They, they really don't, particularly if they're athletes. Mm. So sleep becomes even more important because it's harder to get as you age. 
So I just say that, you know, generally speaking, the, the older the person is, uh, the more, the, the less room for margin of error, I should say there is in their training, because it's going to take them so much longer to get back to, to normal if they go over bounds or they go over overboard for, for too long. And if they're younger, they can recuperate, they can re- rebound pretty quickly, but uh, the older you get, the harder that becomes. So I would just say every, everything just takes longer and you have to plan accordingly and you have to make decisions accordingly. Is is that just my perception, or is is that actually documented that no, you, you lose oh, yeah. you lose fitness quicker when when you miss blocks of time and it takes longer to get it back? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it's, it's when your testosterone is half of what it was in your youth, and your growth hormone is half of what it was or less. Yeah, it's going to take you longer to recover. I mean, that's that's what anabolic steroids do. They, they speed up recovery because they funnel a bunch of energy into the uh, the anabolic side of things, and then that's why performance enhancing drugs work. So when you take away those hormones and you cut them in half as you age. Then your ability to recover slows down, you know, dramatically. You can look at HRV. HRV drops very linearly with age mm. as well. So you can see I've got millions of data points at this point. I actually have a big graph of of, of Morpheus data, different age groups, and you can see the average uh, score per age, and you see a very clear linear decrease with HRV uh, over time. And it's just a function of the body losing its parasympathetic function uh, to one extent or another, which again slows down all the recovery processes. So it's you know, it's just an unfortunate byproduct of aging. We're not designed to last forever. And, and we have to uh, be aware of kind of what our body is capable of. And, and again, train within those limits versus trying to to think that we have the fountain of youth on our side, because the older you get, the slower you recover, no matter what you do. Yeah. You talked about being more cognizant of planning as well there. So that would mean that there are less, there are less highs and, and less lows, if you like. So the training follows a much more moderate path all the time. Um, yep. Because obviously the extremes are what certainly the extremes of intensity or volume or just total workload over a week are what's going to push us over the edge and then lead us to back off, aren't they? And then that's where we're going to lose it. So maybe the end of season recovery doesn't need to be as much. Maybe you know we need to just, uh, like I say, be more mindful because my, my, my experience with most endurance triathletes is that their body might be fifty five, but in their head they're still twenty five. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, yeah, I will say that in general, I tend to get a lot more. I don't know, emails or, or calls or whatever from the older athlete aging population because they all of a sudden start to, you know, get injuries they didn't have before. And they realize that they're just kind of stuck in this rut where their performance isn't really improving despite high training volumes. And they're trying to figure out why. And then, you know, you can do hormonal tests or you can do different uh, blood tests and you can see like, you know, your your numbers are are, are low. I mean, you can't outrun your physiology if, if you're uh, you know, if your hormones are super low and, and you're throwing yourself into the ground, you're just making them worse. Uh, and if you don't change anything, you're going to pay the price for that. So that's where I do think, you know, as, as you age, being more aware of, of what your hormonal systems are doing and getting blood tests done, working with a doctor. Um, I'm not suggesting go out and doing TRT for everybody, but just being, being aware of, of where your hormone levels are at and, and, and trying to do what you can to keep them in normal ranges as you age, uh, can go a long way. If, if, you know, a lot of times I've, I've had athletes, and they're older, let's say, you know, forties and fifties go get blood tests and their levels are just in the ground and they didn't, you know, didn't realize it, but it's just because they kept up train volumes that were too high as they aged and they, mm-hmm. uh, just never fully rebounded from that. So a lot of times you fix that, uh, get hormone levels back up to where they should be. And, and all of a sudden they, they can recover faster and feel better. Would you change the way in which older athletes train, train apart from, um, maybe paying more attention to recovery would you change the the 
um, the trading intensity distribution. I've heard some people saying you should, you want to preserve what you're losing. So maybe more strength training because that's a, that has a human function um, benefit, you know, first a human function benefit besides sports performance and then more hit training. And maybe because you've accrued lots of volume and endurance, perhaps you don't need to re- revisit that one quite as frequently. Um, I don't know that I'd make a blanket statement. I think it's, it's somewhat inter- individualized. Uh, you know, some people, uh, as the age do need a bit more intensity and then some people can't recover from the higher intensity because it's just not what they're good at. I think we kind of have to look at what, what people tend to be more pre-inclined or predisposed to and what their, um, genetics allow them to do and work within that. So it's, it's hard to give a, everyone should always do this. Um, in, in any sport, I've just realized over the years that people are varied. And if you start all of a sudden adding twice as much strength training and you don't compensate that by cutting back on the endurance training, then you're, again, you're, you're setting yourself mm-hmm. up for for too much work. So I, I mean, I, I haven't seen any sort of thing where I would say everyone who ages should always do this. Uh, it, it does kind of depend on, on what the person needs. And if they've never really done any strength training, then yeah, they probably should add some in. But if they've, if they've kept up and built a solid foundation over the years, then I don't know that I would suddenly up that as they, they got older. Right. Right. Okay. Um, going back to nutrition, uh, are there any things that we can do there um, to, uh, counter the aging process are, are there any things we should be eating a bit more of or, or supplementing with um, and anything we should definitely be avoiding yeah i think a lot of it's just you know a good quality diet with enough calories in it um, i know people tend to fall into kind of these these habits of of eating in similar patterns over and over again but a lot of times if, if things are lacking or nutrients aren't uh, there then you can end up with deficiencies you aren't aware of so again this is where i just think the older you get the more um, proactive you can be. So a lot of times getting nutrient panel testing done, uh, seeing if you have any big vitamin mineral deficiencies, uh, just being aware again of kind of where your body's at. I like to use a few things here and there, but for the most part, you know, it's, it's just a good quality diet and making sure you're getting enough calories given your, your demands. And that's where, uh, more anything else, people often fall short or, or they go too high. That's one of the things you, people always struggle with. It's just caloric intake and, and making sure it's where it needs to be. Um, and then again, like I mentioned, I think the big rocks are avoiding too much caffeine. Uh, you know, the reality is no alcohol is particularly beneficial from a performance standpoint and, and people, you know, can make decisions to have it anyway, that's certainly their decision, uh, but just be aware of that. It does slow down your recovery because you don't sleep as well and it has other effects. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, being, being very mindful about, you know, what you put in your body, I think is the, the most important thing. And, um, again, pay attention to how you respond and, and learn your body over time and what you digest well and what you perform well on and and what you don't. So I think that's, that's kind of the benefit of getting older is you've had more time to learn your body and, and hopefully you start making smarter decisions. You get older as a result of what you've learned. So no, no specific recommendations for upping the protein or taking collagen. No, I mean, you definitely, anything. I mean, I, I, again, I wouldn't say you need to do anything different. I would just say those things become more important as you age. You should have been doing those when you were younger anyway. Uh, right. You know, you, sh- you should have been eating well when you're younger. So I don't, I wouldn't say like all of a sudden you, change your diet. You should, you should have been, you should have been eating well and, and had those things uh, where they need to be when you were, you know, competing across all ages. So you just, again, they just become more important because you have less margin for error as you age. So yeah, if you weren't getting a protein when you were younger, then yeah, you better start getting it when you're older. Um, but I, I don't think there's any like massive change that needs to take place as, as you age, as long as you have things dialed in to begin with. Are you agnostic about nutrition? Um, or do you have a particular leaning to one philosophy or another? Um, I mean, I'm, 
in general, I would say, you know, most athletes are going to get, I, I would say, get somewhere between like 0.8 and one gram per pound of protein, uh, you know, 20, 30% fat. And then the rest comes in carbs, uh, which is activity dependent. So how exactly you choose to do that, I, I think uh, is up to the individual and what they enjoy doing, what's sustainable for them, what they respond best to. I think the best diet is the one that people will follow. So I, I have a hard time saying this is the, this is the perfect diet or this is the right way. It's, you know, it's paleo or it's, it's uh, no carbs. It's all carbs. It's, you know, at the end of the day, it's gotta be something that's sustainable for the individual. And, mm. and generally speaking, I, I eat a pretty healthy balanced diet. And I think most people will benefit from, you know, having all the, the major food groups or all three macronutrients and in, in reasonable ratios. Um, you have to get enough protein or you're definitely going to suffer from a recovery standpoint. It's obviously good to get that protein from a variety of sources you know, fruits and vegetables, those things are obviously important for overall health reasons. And then, you know, the majority of carbs and starches and those sorts of things should be dependent on how active you are. If you're an endurance athlete, you're obviously very active. So you're going to have a fairly high intake of carbs. If you're sedentary, you're not very active. You need fewer carbs. So, you know, if I kind of look at the big picture, that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Um, and then, you know, work from an individual basis of, of how people respond and, and what they're able to sustain. I think, again, the best diet is the one that someone's going to follow consistently and, and do mm. well on. Uh, and if you're trying to jump around from one strategy to the next, and you, you never really settle on something that works for you, uh, you, you probably won't be as well off. Are, are you familiar with Tommy Wood, Dr. Tommy Wood from Nutrition uh, Balance I Thrive? Think, I don't think so. He's, he's great, Tommy. Um, I think he's from the Seattle way as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, you should definitely look area. him up. He's really, uh, he's a really interesting guy. Um, but he has this uh, phrase that he said, if, if you tell me a diet's working for you and it's truly working for you, how can I argue with that? It doesn't matter whether it's vegan, paleo, if you eat, you know, if you're a breatharian, <laughs> if it's working for you, then exactly. I can't argue. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It, you know, people are so opinionated about this, this diet versus that diet. You know, there's so many out there. It's endless. Um, but again, to me, it's, it's diet shouldn't be something you can do for 30 days or 60 days. It, it's got to be something that you, you can sustain within your, yeah. your lifestyle. Yeah. For sure. And whatever the best is, is what you can make work for you. Okay. A couple more things. And then I'll just going to ask you about Morpheus. Uh, I read with interest. And again, this is something Brad Cairns has talked about, um, about no pain, no gain, and why we've got this obsession with HIT training. Yeah. Um, particularly with um, endurance athletes, you hear that. There's a lot of coaches out there that come from a military background that are always shouting the no pain, no gain, you know, and uh, suck it up and man up and all those things uh, mm -hmm. turn me off a little bit. Um, how about you? Yeah, look, I think I think the, you know, again, we're, we're very focused on what's in front of us, very short-sighted. And, you know, the, the Tabata research and all the high-intensity research, you know, look, if you take someone for four weeks or six weeks, you know, the person trains harder and higher intensity is probably going to get better. But does that necessarily mean that that's all they should be doing if it's four months or six months or, or four years down the road? And I think, again, we just have to keep in mind that the, the higher the intensity, the higher the cost of that activity, the more we have to spend time recovering. And, and I think the trap people fall into is this, you know, particularly, you know, your, your average consumers can go in the gym uh, and, and think that the harder they train, the, the better results are going to get. And that's, that's obviously not a strategy that works well for the long run. If you look at Endurance sports in particular, there's a, um, I can't think of his first name, but Siler, I believe is his name. Yeah, Steven Siler, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, thank you. You know, kind of looked at the 80-20 rule and, and looked across a wide range of endurance athletes in different sports and, you know, found real, realistically the distribution of, you know, about 80% uh, lower intensity volume work and about 20% higher intensity tend to hold up. And I've seen very similar things in my own time of, of looking across different people's training 
uh, intensities and volumes and then looking at their HRV and their recovery. And then you start to exceed that. You start to go above 20% at high intensity and you start doing you know, 30% or 35. And it's just a matter of time before someone's uh, numbers will start to look worse uh, rather than better. So I tend to say, look, look, break up your total training for the week and, and look at how much time you're spending training as hard as you can versus uh, training at more moderate, reasonable intensities. And if you're you're in the red all the damn time, you're, you're probably going the wrong direction. Yeah, well, back to sustainability, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. It's sustainable fitness. I mean, you have to take that approach. I think endurance athletes um, understand that, the, you know, they can't train at high intensities every day, um, but they don't always, you know, again, make the best decisions, even though they should do and what they, what they can do aren't always the same thing. I've had Stephen on a couple of times, actually, and uh, uh, I'm, a bit, I'm a big fan of polarized training. I use it with most of my athletes as the base point. Again, it back to your thing about recovery and strength. It's, it's individual driven, but still, um, I'm getting a lot of anecdotal responses from people saying, well, I've not been injured as much now and I don't get ill as much because I'm doing a lot of zone two training, um, but I can repeat it day after day after day. And of course, for mitochondrial development, that's what we want, isn't it? It's just laying down that work yeah, regularly. That's exactly where it is. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about the aerobic system is mitochondria turns over rapidly. So you need frequency and you can't have high intensity and high frequency at the same time without running into problems. And that's really just kind of where this idea of like, let's, let's train higher intensities and let's train volume in between and give ourselves a chance to recover and make sure our overall distribution works. So, um, you know, I'm looking at some really interesting stuff now with, with Morpheus, because we have HRV, uh, we have the heart rates during every single workout and we break stuff down into zones and recovery. We're starting to be able to use machine learning now to figure out, you know, what each person's overall intensity distribution needs to be. And we can actually start predicting. So we have, we actually looked at data now, we can predict people's HRV the following day within three points uh, or so wow. based on all the stuff, their sleep, their workout, their activity. Um, and so we're able to predict HRV and the change in the body as a result of all these other variables because we've collected so much data. Um, so I think we can actually start to, you know, I think what we'll find as we get, dig into this, that that, you know, somewhere in the A20 rule is, is a broad rule probably going to show uh, to be effective. Um, but we'll be able to start to use this, this data in a really valuable and, and compelling way where each person uh, could come in, we could collect their data file and then be able to give them a very clear breakdown of what their, their overall intensity and volume should be from a, a macro standpoint of a week or a month. And then, you know, even a daily standpoint of, of what to do today to make sure that you're going to keep improving. Um, because cool, we can, we can use, you know, increase in HRV and a decrease in resting heart rate as pretty good markers of aerobic fitness. You know, if those numbers are going the right direction, you're probably, you're getting better. And if they're not, then uh, maybe not so much. So we can, we can optimize uh, intensities and volumes to achieve those ends. And we can use the machine learning data to, to help mm -hmm. us point that path out and, and to point us out, you know, to let us know when we're, we're not doing those things correctly. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's a really cool point where we're getting closer and closer to data being able to be used in a really compelling, effective way, uh, not to replace coaching by any stretch of imagination, but to augment it and, and to make it better. Mm. Explain a little bit more about how Morpheus works. And you've touched on the fact that it can collect data from all of these various wearables. Um, how much input does it require on a daily basis from the athlete? Because I mm. guess that's, that's the important thing, isn't it? Is, sure. is it going to, is it going to add more onto the number of things I've got to do every day? Yeah. So like I said, we will take whatever, activity or sleep tracker people have. So that's where, you know, Ura and Garmin and Polar and, you know, a wide variety of devices, Apple watches track activity and sleep. And so we pull that in without the athlete or the person having to do really anything. They just download Morpheus, they connect it to their existing wearable and Morpheus pulls that data in. 
Um, the, from the HRV standpoint, that's when we, we do actually have you measure two minutes a day, two and a half minutes a day, because that's the most accurate way to get a snapshot where your body's at and the most accurate way to then see how your body's changing over time. Um, and so that takes a couple of minutes. And then from a workout standpoint, uh, you know, Morpheus will connect any chest strap that people have. We have our own chest strap that's got memory that you can upload afterwards, and then you just get the workout in there. So if you kind of look at the big pieces of it, um, the really the only thing that's taking the additional time is the, the HRV test for two and a half minutes a day. That's, that's really about it. Everything else is just go about your normal day. Use whatever wearable you want to use, you know, track your workout with a chest strap, preferably if it's the higher intensity, it's more accurate. Um, and then Morpheus basically takes care of the rest. And then like, I said, the cool thing is we'll give you a recovery score every day based on what all your numbers are doing. And then if you're working with a coach, we can share that with them remotely through our iPad app. So coaches are able to see all that live data coming in each day. And then we're able to, uh, basically highlight which athletes might be having the biggest issues and the lowest recovery. You can look at all their data and, and, uh, you know, make sure everything's going where you want it to go. And if, if not figure out why not. So. Uh, it's really cool. We've been developing for a couple of years now. And, and the more I've gotten in the hands of coaches, the more eyes I've opened, I think, and the more they've started to realize, you know, all the, all the stuff outside the gym, they traditionally, you know, would just tell the athlete to go do, you got to make sure you get enough sleep or, you know, mm. that's great, but you don't know if they actually did until you can see the numbers. And so being able to see that and have that information, your, your, your fingertips to, to make better decisions is, is really, really valuable. When do you, when do you measure the HRV? Do you do it first thing in the morning? First thing in the morning is the best time. Yeah, like I said, like I said, it's the same process of if you were going to measure body weight every morning, which I actually recommend. I think I think measuring body weight is kind of underrated. I think there's value in measuring your body weight because if your body weight's fluctuating wildly, there's probably a reason for that, and it's mm -hmm. it's a way to also keep your diet accountable. So um, I tend to tell people weigh your body, weigh yourself every morning, and measure your HRV. It's you know a five minute process, and it keeps you on track. And so you just develop this habit of of get up, weigh yourself, measure your HRV. And it's a really you know simple little ritual you can do that just kind of puts you in the right frame of mind, um, lets you know where you're at, and then just builds builds a good overall habit to be consistent in your tracking. I, I did used to try before I got the whoop. I tried doing the um, HRV for training thing, which asks you to measure for sixty seconds. Um, I was never sure whether I should do it before I got out of bed so that my you know, heart rate didn't go out. So yeah. while my resting heart rate was still relatively low or whether that really mattered, whether I could get up, brush my teeth, weigh it myself. Doesn't, it doesn't anything. really matter. No. Honestly, as long as you kind of see, as long as you see your resting heart rate come back down to what you're, you, you'll get a sense of what your normal resting heart rate is. As long as your resting heart rate is kind of in that normal range, which will, you know, if you get up and walk around, it might take you laying down for, I don't know, 30 seconds or a minute for it to come back down to normal. Uh, you're fine. It's, it's more that if you get up and you have a coffee and then you measure HRV, yeah, right. That's where you've thrown things off. But getting up and moving around is not a big deal. Um, and I usually actually give myself 10, 15 minutes to kind of get up and actually be awake before I measure it. So I'm getting a, a more consistent read if I'm half asleep while I'm measuring it. There'll be some coaches listening to this as well as obviously interested uh, athletes. Um, what, what's the cost on a monthly basis for Morpheus for, for both athlete and coach? So for athletes, there is no cost. Uh, it's just a one-time purchase. They, they get two devices. So we have the, the HRV band that goes around your forearm and measures recovery once a day. Like I said, measures HRV. You don't need to wear that 24-7. You can wear whatever else you want for that. Um, and then we have a chest strap. And the nice thing about chest strap is it's got memory. So if you go out and do a workout and you're on the road, you don't have your phone with you, anything like that, you can just upload the workout into Morpheus afterwards and, and sync all that data. Um, and that's uh, 157 US for the package. And then there's no ongoing subscription fees or anything like that. 
Um, and then we have the coach app, which again, requires the iPad, but gives you access to all that athlete data. And it also has a live training feature. So if you're in a gym and you want to look at everyone's heart rates that are in the gym, uh, we have the system to basically display everyone's heart rates on the iPad. Or if you just want to take the iPad out to a track, you can actually look at people's heart rate as they're on the field. Um, so that that's about hundred bucks a month US and that'll give them access to all that data that the athletes have coming in. And even if you know, even if the athlete just doesn't measure HRV and they, they don't even want to use Morpheus, we can still just get the data, whatever they have. If they have a Garmin, we'll still pull Garmin data in. If they have a, a Fitbit, we'll still pull on sleep data from activity data and Fitbit. So regardless of what people do um, from an HRV standpoint, you can still get all the data from their wearables, or at least the vast majority of their wearables um, through Morpheus, which again, I think is, is really valuable for the coaches that are you know trying to help people make better decisions, both in their workouts and in their daily lives. Does does the chest strap link up with a Garmin or a Sunto watch? Uh, it does, yeah. It does, yeah. yeah the chest strap is A&T Plus and Bluetooth. So if you have a Garmin or a Sunto or anything A&T Plus, you can read your heart rate off that, and then you can uh, upload it to Morpheus. And the other thing actually Morpheus does, I probably should mention, is we give you heart rate zones. So we use a three-heart rate zone-based system, um, but we change those zones dynamically based on recovery. Uh, because the reality is if your recovery is lower – then the same heart rates represent a higher level of relative stress. Yes. So we have we have a blue zone for recovery. We have a green zone for conditioning. We have a red zone for overload, which is just you know naming zone one, two, and three. But again, those zones will adapt to you each day based on your recovery. So for example, if my recovery is relatively high, maybe my overload and my high intensity zone starts at like 170. Uh, if my recovery is much lower, it might start at 160. Because again, at those lower levels of recovery, it's taken me more effort and more cost to given, you know, to produce the same level of power output and same level of heart rate. So we, we basically use dynamic heart rate training of scale based on recovery each day. And that's one of the other cool things that Morpheus is it's going to give you those daily zones to help dial your training. And as a coach, I don't have to think about it. I can just say, Hey, go get, you know, I want you to do uh, some threshold work in the green zone. And that green zone is again, it's going to adapt to that person relative to their recovery. So that's another unique thing about that. Uh, no other device out there is doing. No, I like that. Um, because you know, I've had no end of comments from people over the years saying, oh, I was trying to do these intervals there. I just couldn't get my heart rate up. So I kept working harder, <laughs> you yep. know, and probably that was the, the wrong thing to be doing at that time. Cause the reason they couldn't get the heart rate up was because they were still fatigued from previous exactly. days training. Yep. Yeah. So like, so we, 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 we just over the years of collecting data and, and training athletes, I realized how much their recovery would impact, you know, their heart rate response and, and how they were feeling and where they should be. Um, but as a coach, it's really hard to dial those things in each day. And, you know, you kind of have to use a lot of feel and feedback. And if you're uh, not in a scenario where you're you know, able to do that with the one-on-one -on -one and everyone you train, um, you know, this makes it really, really easy to say, hey, we want you in green zone. Well, that green zone is going to be relevant to where relevant uh, related to where your recovery is that day. So it's a really easy way to dial that in without having to do this, this individualized mental math every day to try to figure out where you want them to be. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll put some links to that in the show notes. Um, Joel, um, there was one more thing I wanted to pick up on. You've talking about the, the fact that strength and endurance doesn't work concurrent training. So, you know, if you're trying to build your strength up, then you, you shouldn't be doing endurance. And I've heard that before, but I've also thought I'd seen some papers out now that saying that's not, they don't think that's quite as important anymore. Um, so now sure. I'm, I'm now I'm getting a bit confused. And I also wonder <laughs> when we've got endurance athletes, I, I know the priority isn't to develop strength as it might be for an MMA athlete or, a, a you know, a, um, a football player, American football player. But still, um, there will be triathletes listening saying, well, you're always trying to get us to work on our strength, Wardy. Now what do we do? Yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not, I actually 
you know, I don't believe that we, the, maybe I said somewhere, but, you know, strength and conditioning aren't totally separate qualities that you can never train together. Obviously we train strength and we train conditioning at different points. I think they're the, the physiology and the genetics are a little bit fuzzy and, you know, one paper will come out that shows a, a pretty big uh, impact of concurrent training. And then another paper will come out and shows they actually work better together. I think the reality is it depends on the population that you're working with. So the way I would say is, again, your body has a limited capacity to take stress and then respond to it positively and rebuild tissue. Now, if you're at a fairly low level of fitness, then it doesn't take very much for your body to get a lot better, right? So you can train strength, conditioning all together. Once that doesn't matter, your body is going to continue to improve both of them. But my point would be, as your fitness level increases, it takes an ever-increasing amount of volume and intensity around one particular area for it to continue to improve. And in that case, you know, trying to improve both your strength and your aerobic fitness and conditioning at a high level at the same time is probably not going to happen very effectively because again, you're limited in how much, how many hours a day you can recover from training. So in that case, I, I, I don't say train them, you know, don't train them both. It's about prioritization. So if I'm really going into a phase where my goal is to increase my aerobic fitness and my overall, uh, you know, endurance type performance, I, I'm not going to try to increase my hypertrophy or my muscle strength significantly in the same period of time, because the amount of work it would take to do that would probably take away from the recovery of the endurance training. So I wouldn't say it's necessary even about understanding all the logistics of signaling and molecular adaptations and you know how that all plays out from a concurrent standpoint. I think it's more about your body has limited ability to recover because energy is limited and you got to decide where you want to spend that energy on. And if, if you're at a high level, then the more important that decision becomes because the more it's going to take for it to improve incrementally and you really can't afford to try to increase both at the same time. So um, hopefully that clears up a little bit. Yeah, a long time ago, I worked with a group of rugby league players who who need a high level of strength and endurance. And we experimented with having blocks of training that we phased in as they went along. So they do four weeks of uh, endurance-based training with strength as a sort of secondary and then four weeks of strength and then endurance of priority and then three and three and two and trying to dovetail them together as they get close to the season. Yep. Um, unfortunately, we didn't we didn't just manage to collect enough data to find out whether that was better than anything else. But the players liked it, and it was different. And like you said, if you can get if you can get buying from people and it becomes sustainable, then that in itself is um, a success, isn't it? Because you're going to get more, more more training sessions completed. And I think you can also just be aware of okay, if our goal is to improve muscular endurance, then I probably don't want to do a bunch of hypertrophy to try to get a bigger muscle. And that's where I do think some of the signaling comes into play that the body probably is smart enough and there is enough research to stay. If you're doing a lot of endurance training, that's that's counterproductive to have a bigger muscle because that means you're going to have worse endurance. So there probably is some is some interference in like hypertrophy and endurance work, for example, but strength and, and endurance can have, uh, you know, probably less of an interference effect. So just be aware. I'm not saying, again, you don't do both trainings. It's just being aware of what, what is the primary objective and make sure they complement each other rather than, than, than take away from each other. Awareness and mindfulness crops up a lot in these conversations I have these days with the with people like yourself, Joel. And I, you know, I sometimes think that's one of the keys that we're often missing out on as coaches is helping athletes to build awareness of exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it and what's happening to their body, rather than relying on all of the tech that we get, which makes us a little lazy. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think I think I think the the, the goal of technology really should never be to to replace a coach or or to replace that process. It's it should be just to help increase that awareness for both the coach and the athlete of, of what's happening. And then ultimately it's just about making decisions. I mean, 
coaching and, and performing as an athlete, there's a lot of decisions that have to get made. You know, how much do I train? How hard do I train? What should I do? Uh, what do I eat? Like, you know, there's millions of decisions that go on every day that lead to, you know, the, the changes that we see in our bodies, whether positive or negative. So, you know, I think the more aware we can be of those things, the more educated we can be in those things, and the better the information we have in those decisions, the better decisions we're more likely to make. It's, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. If we don't have any information, we're going to make probably not the best decisions. But if we can use the information that we're getting uh, wisely, then ultimately we're probably going to be better off and uh, see the performance we're, we're, we're training for. A great place to finish, Joel. Appreciate your input and your expertise and your uh, your knowledge level today. Fantastic yeah. conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for being here. No problem. I appreciate having me on. Thank you to Joel for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. As usual, you'll find links to all of today's discussion points in the show notes below. To make sure that you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and subscribe. If you'd like specific guidance and structure for your training, then please think about joining my SWAT Inner Circle community where we have training plans for all types of endurance events as well as monthly live workshops diving deep on specific subjects and a thriving Facebook community of like-minded individuals. The investment is £50 a month so I hope to see some of you on the inside. Right, that's all for now. I hope you have a great week and I'll see you on the next episode.